Do you know the number? Josiah, you've already played the game, so you can't participate. Uh, do you know the number of books in the New Testament that were written when Paul was a prisoner? Can everybody give me a number? Take a guess. Did you say eight? Thirteen. Not quite thirteen. No. So lower than thirteen, more than one. All right. Seven. Possibly eight if Paul wrote Hebrews. There is a reference to the fact that the Hebrew Christians were not ashamed of his chains. That's all it says. It doesn't say who is the author. is. You were not ashamed of my chains. So it's possible that Hebrews was also a prison epistle. But Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philemon, Titus, 1st and 2nd Timothy. Uh, let's see. Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and what was the other one I mentioned? Philippians. All right. So seven books of the Bible. Um, that's a lot of material. So should we go verse by verse tonight? I don't think we have time for that. But I will uh, start you out in Acts chapter 21. Now my apologies this morning. I was uh, about as blind as a bat and really struggling to read my Bible. I don't know if you caught on that this morning. But that's because I didn't have my glasses. So I think I've finally given in to the fact I need them every time I get up here now. So... We'll put them on. But if we're going to preach a message on Paul the prisoner, um, you might ask yourself this basic question. Why would God put a lot of material about this event in one man's life, by the way, in the New Testament? Well, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you can outline the book of Acts, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, how does the gospel get to the uttermost parts of the earth? You open the book of Acts, and the gospel is contained to one little city of Jerusalem. By the time you come to the end of the book of Acts, by the way, what's the next book of the Bible that follows the book of Acts? All right, Romans. And uh, by the time you get to the book, uh, end of the book of Acts, you're in the city of Rome. So how did the gospel go from Jerusalem to Rome? So the Holy Spirit considers this important material for us to consider and to meditate upon uh, because he has a will and a program of getting the gospel to the entire world. As a matter of fact, at this time through the life of Paul, the gospel gets even into Caesar's house. So the gospel is reaching the most powerful center of government in the world at the time through the life of this one man. Now, we're not going to try to cover all of that tonight. I'm just trying to give you more of a survey message tonight. Uh, on this particular topic, because it is a vast amount of material. But then uh, I would like to drive home a conclusion that one man did not do this alone. And we'll drive home some thoughts and conclusions on this. Now, remember our series um, is just entitled Paul, and the proposition for the series is to allow Christ 
to live his life through your life. And we'll look at the attitudes of Paul um, as we see how he views what's happening to him. And he lets Christ live his life through his life. And uh, so, Paul the prisoner of Jesus Christ. So, Acts chapter 21, uh, let's look here at verses 27 through 39, all right? Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, going through 39. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teacheth all men everywhere against the people and the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple, and hath polluted this holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions, ran down unto them, and when, he saw the chief, and when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beating of Paul. Verse 33. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and some another among the multitude. And when they could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came up to the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him! And as Paul was led into the castle, he said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Canst thou speak Greek? Art thou not that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and leadest out into the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. And when he had given him silence, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with his hand unto the people. And uh, there was made a great silence. He spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue, saying... All right, and then we won't get into Paul's address to the people. But now Paul has uh, completed his first and his second missionary journeys. And he brings with him a new convert from the city of Ephesus to Jerusalem. Now, I think that there's a purpose in that. Paul's trying to help this new Ephesian Christian understand his heritage and his roots. But this man is a Gentile. Gentiles were not allowed to go into the temple grounds proper. That was reserved just for the Jewish people. Now, if you remember your Old Testament stories on the tabernacle and the temple, um, it was in different layers or stages that you could approach God. Remember, the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, only one time a year did the high priest enter into that room. And from the very heart of the tabernacle and the temple, then going back out, then it was just layers and levels of restriction. 
So in the holy place, only the priests that had uh, their certain time of year, two weeks a year, that they could be in the holy place. And that's all they were in the holy place. Uh, then you had the, the, the area where all the priests could burn sacrifices. And then you had the court of the men. Then you had the court of the women. And then finally you had the court of the proselytes or the Gentiles. But written in literally granite were warnings to Gentiles upon pain of death enter the temple. If you enter the temple, you're going to lose your life. Now, part of what we're not understanding at this time in Acts chapter 21 is the tumultuous times that the city of Jerusalem was in. Just a year or two before this event takes place, there was a revolt on the temple grounds that resulted in the slaughter of 20,000 people in one afternoon. 20,000 people had their bloodshed outside the temple grounds. And so as a result of that event, then the Romans garrisoned uh, their soldiers at the Antonio Fortress, which was slightly elevated above the temple grounds, and they had a, a sentry posted there so that they could keep their eyes on what was happening uh, at the temple because um, different Romans and, and, and Greeks, the generals and so forth, learned that the temple was a, a hot spot, right? Um, going back to the Maccabean period between the New Testaments, Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by offering a pig on the altar, and that started a war. And the Greeks were eventually uh, defeated, and they, they cleansed the temple, and that's how we get Hanukkah. Um, but then... Uh, Caesar tried to march his uh, infantry into the temple grounds bearing his image on their uh, banners and they were repulsed. Uh, the people actually stoned and threw stones at them to drive them out. They, to have the image of any person on the temple grounds was like the worst sin. It was idolatry to the Jews. So they stringently defended the temple ground and they were given autonomy over the temple area. And so this was completely under the control of the Jewish priesthood and, and so forth. So this is the, the setting that goes into this particular situation. And so Paul has returned to Jerusalem um, and he is working with some Jewish men uh, who needed to dedicate themselves to the Lord. And so Paul takes a vow, and uh, he's there performing his religious rites in the temple. He's shaved his head, and he's under a vow, and he's paying the price for his Christian brothers. And they're going through uh, these uh, temple uh, vows and dedications and so forth. And it's there that the Jews, having traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, recognized the Apostle Paul. And they had caused problems for him back in Ephesus. Do you not remember that story? All right. And so then they stir up trouble. And they go around and they begin to incite the mob. This is the guy that's causing problems for us all over the world. Let's get him help. All right. Let's round him up. And so 
they ripped Paul out of his de- dedicating himself before the Lord, and they start punching and beating and kicking, and they're, they're, they're going to murder this guy, all right? Seize him violently. And they kicked him out of the, the, the area where the Gentiles could be. They kicked him out of the temple grounds proper and barred the doors so that another tragedy like what happened a couple of years before wouldn't happen. So now this mob is outside pulverizing Paul, and the centurion up in the lookout tower sees that the city is in an uproar. Now it's time for the Romans to get involved. And so here, the highest ranking Roman in the city uh, is listed for us here um, as, uh, let's see here, I've got to go back to 21, my Bible page turned on me, Lysias. Um, I'm trying to get his correct name here. So we see this at the end of uh, verses 39 and, and 40. Um, he speaks to Lysias and says, hey, can I talk to you about this? And so he's the highest ranking Roman in the city. Uh, and we're going to see what happens that Paul is actually... Uh, captured by the Romans and uh, taken away. He's put in chains, and they're, they're trying to get him back to the fortress. But the crowd is chasing the Roman soldiers. So they finally decide, all right, before this all just breaks out and goes totally wrong, we've got to pick up Paul and run with him, all right? So they've got Paul on their shoulders, and they're running with him, running up the steps, all right? And the people are running after, away with him, away with him. They're, they're, they're wanting to shed blood. And um, so then they get to the top of the steps, and they're in that secure position. And Paul asks if he can talk to the people. And, uh, but we're not going to go to that part of it. You can read that. But this is how Paul is arrested. Now, obviously, when Paul was on his missionary journeys, he was in jail in, in Philippi, was he not? All right. But then he was released the next morning. So when we talk about Paul the prisoner, this is going to go on for years. Whereas he is in the Roman legal system. Um, Part of it is good. Part of it is bad. uh, But God uses all these years and God never wastes uh, his pain or our pain. Uh, and does not waste our lives. And so a lot is accomplished through Paul's life at this particular time. And then we understand, too, how the gospel advances to Rome um, through this particular event. All right, so let's go over to chapter 23. And uh, Paul is going to begin to inject the gospel into this whole situation. Paul is all about the gospel. And so he stands now before the Sanhedrin. So this is a Jewish issue, right? They have autonomy on the temple grounds, even though the Romans were responsible for keeping peace and order in the city. The Romans then turn him back over to the Jewish council, chapter 23. And Paul, earnestly beholding the council, said, Men and brethren... So this is the Sanhedrin. This is the the Council of Seventy that's in charge of Judaism, the temple grounds. Uh, He says, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. That's all he says. 
I have a good conscience, and I live with a good conscience before God. And the high priest Ananias commanded him that stood by to smite him on the mouth. Then Paul said unto him, God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for sittest thou to judge me after the law, and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law? And they that stood by said, Revilest thou God's high priest? Then Paul said, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou not shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Of the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question. And when he had said so, there arose a dissension between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, neither angels nor spirits. They're the modern-day Christian liberal, right? There's no afterlife, there's no spirits, beings, right? So they're, they're pretty liberal. And, um, but the Pharisees confess both. Verse 9, And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel hath spoken to him, let us not fight against God. And there arose a great dissension. The chief captain, fearing lest Paul should have been pulled in pieces of them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the castle. <laughs> so poor Paul. I mean, he's, he, he's being yanked uh, limb to limb here, right? Trying to be ripped apart. But um, this is not just some smart legal maneuver on Paul's part. Paul is trying to interject the exact reason why he's in trouble. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness, and you know the rest of the passage. This is spiritual warfare. And Paul is being called into question over hope. The hope of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then we of all people are most miserable. And there's no meaning to life without a resurrection. So Jesus Christ arose from the dead, and I go around and I preach the resurrection, that there is a living Savior. And so Paul then is able to divide the, the religious council, um, and their animosity towards one another at this time is shown in the passage, but what lies behind it is all the political intrigue in the city at this time. Who's trying to control the city. Um, now, this is most likely 60, let's just call it 60 AD. So, fast forward 10 years in 70 AD, what happens in Jerusalem? Do you know? The Roman general Titus comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And so, for about 15 to 20 years, Trouble is brewing in Israel. Trouble is brewing in Jerusalem. And so this is a very tumultuous time in the city. And a high priest is mentioned here. Um, this is not the one of the Gospels. Right? This is a different high priest that is mentioned. Uh, he came to power after uh, the ascension of Christ. 
but he was known to be pro-Roman and a collaborator with the Romans. And when 70 AD came, the Jewish people hated their high priest so much, the first thing they did when they wanted to bellow against Rome was assassinate their high priest to get rid of him. They hated him that much because he was so cruel and so vicious. And so he directly goes against the law and he smites Paul. Now, um, verse 3, uh, Paul in anger reacts to this. And so the question then is, did you not know that you just insulted the high priest? And so there's different ways to look at verse 3. Um, oh, well, I had no idea that was a high priest. I didn't know the high priest would act in such a way. All right, so he wasn't acting like the high priest. But I don't think that's how that's to be interpreted because um, later Paul quotes uh, the, the Old Testament, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. So I think it was a, a, a genuine apology uh, that was issued here because when Christ was reviled, how did he answer? He didn't. He opened not his mouth. So when we're mistreated, do we go to defend ourselves? Yeah, that's usually our course of action, isn't it? And so we've all been there. But Paul uh, apologizes for this, and then he appeals to the Pharisees. And, and so verse 11, I think, is key at this point. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for thou hast testified me of Jerusalem, now, notice the end of verse 11. So thou must bear witness also, where? In Rome. So now the gospel is going to go to the uttermost part of the earth. It's going to go to the, the, the capital of world power. And so this is why this is included. Um, Paul is taking the gospel as he goes to Rome. Now, maybe the gospel is already there, right? But we're at least presented... Uh, with literary and, and historical evidence that the gospel has been fulfilled and that the disciples fulfilled the Great Commission to go into all of the world. So that's why this material is important. And even one man's life is important. And the events that are taking place, God is using that to show his overarching purpose to advance the gospel into the world. And so... Our life might just have our point of view, just our, through our lenses, but God is showing the bigger picture of what's going on, but especially including this verse here. All right, then um, he's not done with trials, so he's in the city of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is not a safe place. So now they send him down to Caesarea. All right, verse 23 of chapter 23. Um, so Paul is in the castle. His nephew hears about a plot to kill him. And um, so the Roman uh, leader there in the city is informed of this. And um, verse 17, Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath certain thing to tell him. So now verse 23, And he called unto him, How many centurions? Two hundred. That's quite a large military escort for one little Jewish rabbi, Pharisee, Christian, is it not? 
200 armed guards to, to take you. Now, this is because Paul has declared previously that he's a Roman citizen. All right. Uh, just jump back with me to chapter 22, verse 25. The um, Romans bound him, they thinking that he was the Egyptian that had led 4,000 men out in the wilderness, and they were going to flay him. All right. They were going to whip him in verse 25. And they bound him with uh, thongs and palsam and the centurion that stood by. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard that, he went and told the chief captain, saying, Take heed what thou doest, for this man is a Roman. To lie about Roman citizenship would cost you your life. So he's, he's not lying about his Roman citizenship. And... Um, so basically what they've done is they, they've stretched him out on the rack and they've pulled him as tight as you can possibly pull. And they then were going to take the whip and use that to cut his flesh. I think at that point Paul is like, Lord, I've had enough. I want to claim some earthly rights here. I'm a Roman citizen. Roman citizens don't get whipped by Rome. All right? Not without a trial anyway. So I'm going to in, interject here. And so he interjects and declares his citizenship and um, does not have to experience that. All right, now let's jump back <clears throat> before uh, Felix. So chapter 23, verse 23, he sent down to Felix in Caesarea uh, Maritime and um, has to appeal there, but uh, the centurion uh, sends a letter, okay, and so, make ready 200 soldiers to go to Caesarea and horsemen, three score and ten. So, uh, 70 mounted soldiers on horseback. This, this is quite a military unit. All right? They're prepared to do battle for this one little Roman citizen. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. So, who replaced then Pilate? Felix. All right. And so, uh, Felix is down by the coast. Um, I don't know. I mean, if you had a choice uh, of living at Carmel or Hollister for your residence, where would you choose, right? Well, I guess that depends upon your tolerance for fog, right? But, um, so he's choosing to live down at Caesarea Maritime. Now, if you've never been there, it reminds you of Carmel. It's, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's a gorgeous area. And the Mediterranean climate, just like what you have here on the central coast here in California, just a gorgeous place to live. So no wonder. I mean, who wants to be up in the dusty Judean foothills, all right, when you could be down at the beautiful ocean? So the seat of government is down in Caesarea, and they take Paul down there, and uh, they wrote a letter after this manner, verse 26. Claudius uh, Lysias, that's his name, I was trying to find it earlier. Unto the most excellent governor Felix sendeth greetings. This man was taken of the Jews and should have been killed of them. Then came I with an army and rescued him, having understood that he was a Roman. And I would have known the cause, wherefore they accused him. I brought him forth unto their council, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law, but to have nothing laid to his charge worthy of death or of bonds. And when it was told me now that the Jews laid in wait for the man, I sent straightway to thee and gave his commandment to his accusers also to say before thee what they have against him. Farewell. 
Verse 31, Then the soldiers, as it was commanded them, took Paul and brought him uh, by night to Antipatrius, and on the morrow they left with the horsemen to go with him and returned to the castle, who, when they came to Caesarea and delivered the epistle to the governor, presented Paul also before him. And when the governor had read the letter, he asked of what province he was, and when he understood that he was of Cilicia, he said, I will hear thee, said he, when thine accusers also are come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's judgment hall. All right. So all of this is progressing. Um, Paul at least is being protected. All right. His life is being spared here. Um, and so we'll see that he then has his trial before Felix. And he makes an appeal. So let's go over to chapter 25, and then we're going to come to a driving point with all of this in just a minute. Now when Festus, or Felix, was come into the province after three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priests and the chief of the Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Um, so here's all of the trial. All right, verse 6. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea, and the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews which came down from Jerusalem stood round about and laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not, what? They could not prove. All right, so what caused the, the riot in the temple? Do you remember? He brought the Ephesian, the Gentile, into the temple, but he didn't do that. They saw him in the city of Jerusalem, so they made an assumption. Paul has defiled the temple by bringing this man in here, but he wasn't anywhere to be found in the temple grounds. And so all of these charges are false. They, they can't prove what they're saying at all. There's, there's no evidence around this at all. Um, and while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor yet against Caesar, I have uh, offended, have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem, and there be judged of these things before me? All right, are you willing to go back to a place where there was a, a vow of dedicated assassins to hunt you down? Would you go back into that political kind of environment? You're a Roman citizen. You don't have to do that. And so this is when Paul then makes a step forward, and this is how Paul ends up in Rome. All right, verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof they accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. Listen, you crooked, dirty politician, you corrupt judge, you can't send me up there. You wanting to show a political favor, you're not going to do that. I appeal to Caesar. This is where I belong, all right? I need justice, and I need to be treated correctly. So he appeals to Caesar. Now, um, Roman citizens could directly be heard by Caesar. Now, Caesar at this time, Caesar, by the way, 
uh, it just means king. All right. So the Caesars change in Rome, and the present Caesar or king uh, had people that would listen to these trials. He wouldn't actually listen to each one, but it was an executive, uh, I guess you might call it a privilege of the executive branch to, to hear cases of appeal uh, at this time in, in the Roman Empire. And so he appeals uh, to Caesar. Verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Unto Caesar thou shalt go. And after certain days, King Agrippa and Bernice came unto Caesarea to salute Festus. All right, so Paul is uh, standing before the Sanhedrin and then before Felix or Festus, and he makes his appeal, and uh, God is living his life through Paul's life. All right, so chapter 27, we're not going to take time to read that, but chapter 27 is his journey to Rome. There's a storm. There's a mighty shipwreck that takes place, and uh, 276 souls are saved because Paul prays for their safety, and a sovereign God delivers 276 souls. Um, by the way, he was uh, shipwrecked on the island of Malta um, back in, I think it was 1950, Malta issued a commemorative stamp celebrating the 19th hundred anniversary of Paul's shipwreck. So just a, a little bit of historical uh, information there for you. And so Paul journeys uh, to Rome, and so the gospel goes to Rome uh, through this meeting. But now, as I mentioned to you, Paul could not have gone through this alone. He was basically under house arrest and given certain privileges because the accusations couldn't be proved against him. So his friends were allowed to come and visit him. They were allowed to meet his provisions to provide food for him. They were allowed to worship with him and to study the scriptures. He was allowed to send correspondence out. And so uh, I think one thing that would be important to understand um, Verse 32 of chapter 26, he would have been set free uh, had he not appealed to Caesar. Is that really true? I don't know. Maybe have been murdered in Jerusalem. Um, but he ends up staying there um, for two years. All right? There's a transfer at this time um, between the, the governors, all right? And uh, so Paul ends up spending two years in, in a jail in Caesarea, and he's going to end up spending time in, in a Roman jail. But now I'd like us to, to go and look at those that support Paul uh, during his imprisonment. Let's go to Colossians chapter 4, and we'll close with this. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Chapter 4, verses 7 uh, through 18. So give you the slide here. All right, Paul's co-workers, Colossians 4, 7 through 18. Verse 7, all my state shall Tychus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might uh, know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all the things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, 
So there's someone else who's in, in prison uh, for Christ. Uh, saluteth you and Marcus' sister's son to Barnabas. Now remember on the first missionary journey, John Mark betrayed Paul. Well, he's in Paul's graces again. And uh, he's a great help to Paul at this time in Paul's life. Uh, Touching whom you have received commandment, if he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and for them that are in Laodicea and them that are in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, Demas greet you. Uh, Demas will, in the third missionary journey, uh, turn back because he loves the world. But verse 15, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea in Nymphus and the church that is in his house. Verse 16, and when this epistle was read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of Laodiceans. So you could call Colossians the Colossian Laodicean epistle. Right? So this letter would be also written to the Laodiceans. And that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. And to say unto Archibus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received from the Lord, that thou fulfill it. The salutation by the hands of me, Paul. Remember my bonds. Grace be with you. Amen. All right, so at this point, Paul is in prison, and uh, he does write uh, these seven letters, and then he sends them out to the different churches. But he has all kinds of help. He has co-workers. And you heard last week Dr. Innes say there's no easy way to maintain or to build a church. That is so true. The life of discipleship is a call to inconvenience. We, we can't live convenient lives and have a church. It's not going to happen. And so this is definitely an inconvenience for Paul. But God puts him in a place where he has to write. And um, through all of these writings, the church is blessed. We receive instructions on church structure, church officers, the Lord's table, uh, all kinds of different instructions that only come from the prison epistles. Pastors and deacons and all their qualifications, all of this stuff is, is written why Paul is a prisoner. Uh, so God had a, a purpose in all of this too, to instruct you and me on how to be the Christians that God wants us to be in the world in which we live. So he used Paul, who was a very educated man, to write most of our New Testament, about 13 books, we believe. But my point that I would like to draw out of this passage in Colossians 4 is just look at all of the different helpers that Paul had when he was under house arrest. Did the gospel go forward in Russia during the communist era? Sure did. Were pastors thrown in jail? They sure were. They were they were tortured. It was really a movement of co-laborers, fellow workers. It was 
the priesthood of the believer at work in the church. And so every single one of you is important. And you can do something to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God. We need every single one of you to do something. Now, as I look around the room tonight, I might be preaching to the choir, right? Um, But then take that mentality. Invite somebody to share the ministry that you do. Train them to do it and then give it away to them. Because there may be a day when you can't do ministry. There may be a day where it's illegal to do what we're doing now in the state of California. And California is very bold. And they're writing bills and laws that are just unthinkable. Right? And there's a couple of them right now that just make you scratch your head. They've got a piece of legislation that the Senate has written that says if there are divorced parents living in separate states and the California parent wants to take the minor child away from the parent living in another state so that that child can have a sex change, it's okay to kidnap them, uh, keep them forcibly here in the state so they can have that surgery. I mean, what sickness is this? I mean, and so that's just bad faith with other states. You want them to honor your court custody cases? Well, then you need to honor theirs too, right? And so there's just bad faith in all of that. It's a horrible piece of legislation. And there's other crazy things uh, that are going on. Um, I know the anger over Roe versus Wade. Uh, Nothing changed in the state of California other than it emboldened them to become more vicious in their abortion. And now they're trying to... uh, constitutionalized late-term abortion in the state of California up to the moment of birth. I mean, this is sick, folks. This is is wicked. And so what the church teaches and stands for as the pillar and the ground of truth may come into conflict with future laws in the state of California, and we may face jail time. We may very well. It may be persecution, right? But it takes a team of people to do ministry. And I appeal to you to spread this mindset around the body of Christ here at Calvary and get people involved. Train them to do what you're doing and uh, go along with this. All right, now let's close with uh, 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Now, 2 Timothy um, may be uh, written during another imprisonment Paul may have been released for his third missionary journey and then rearrested, and 2 Timothy written um, just before Paul is martyred. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a prison epistle. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We read this. Remember that the Lord Jesus of the seed of David was raised up from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. But the word of God is what? Not bound. So God's power and God's word is not bound. Paul kept an attitude that says God can do anything that he pleases. Um, 
Paul was even thankful for his prison experiences. Paul kept a, a very rejoicing attitude. When you think about the Philippian epistle, rejoice evermore. All right. So Paul kept a, an excellent spirit in all of his trials and troubles. And so, yes, he suffered uh, as an evildoer, uh, even when he wasn't. But that's always going to be the, the viewpoint of the world uh, for those that are advancing the gospel of Christ, that we're doing evil. I mean, maybe seven to ten years ago, it was very vogue to put down Christian missions as doing evil in the world because we're, we're trying to westernize uh, different cultures. No, we're not, all right? But I am glad to say that the gospel has stopped such pagan practices as burning widows in India. When the husband died, well, then the wife had to die too just because she was associated with the husband. And so the gospel stopped those kind of things. So that, those kind of things, well, that's okay to see go away in, in a culture, right? Um, and so it, the gospel doesn't destroy cultures. We give them the seed of the gospel, and then we let the, the plant develop as God will bring it about. So they do things differently in different cultures than we do here. We understand that. But Paul kept a positive attitude in the gospel, in the, even though he was considered an evildoer. You may be considered an evildoer, but just know who you're working for and rely upon your team during that time. And so I encourage us tonight to let Christ live his life through our life, even if it is trouble. But then rely upon the family of God. And God does not waste your trouble or the pain because we saw the literary purpose in this material being introduced. The gospel goes from Jerusalem to Rome to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so your life, you may think it's one little life. What can God do? Well, God can do what he pleases. And it will amaze you what God does with just your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Paul the prisoner. And we thank you for all of the inspired scripture that you gave to him. We thank, we're thankful for his attitude. We're thankful for his co-workers. Uh, we're thankful for your overarching plan for his life, which gives us assurance and confidence in knowing that you have a sovereign plan to bring glory to your name. through.